You're listening to a podcast brought to you by international law firm Trowers and Hamlins, combining market sector thought leadership, advice and ideas, helping businesses and governments prepare for the future. Hello, my name's Scott Dorling and I'm the uh, head of the National Housing Practice in Trowers and Hamlins. And I'm joined today by Steve Partridge, who is the Director of Affordable Housing Consultancy at Savills. And we're going to have a discussion about issues around the so-called renaissance in council house building. Welcome, Steve. Good morning, Scott. Hello, everybody. Can I just ask, um, firstly, if you could just take us through some of the headline figures that are coming from your recent capacity study on um, local authorities? Yes, thanks. So we, um, we produced um, uh, an analysis of all housing revenue accounts across um, England. Um, uh, which was published in the um, November edition of Social Housing Magazine. And um, this follows a, a previous iteration of the analysis for the previous financial year, which was published in May. So what we're trying to establish here is a kind of suite of information and a, a database which stimulates debate around the opportunities for funding new council house building within local authority housing revenue accounts. We've brought in a range of evidence, as well as the evidence from the accounts themselves. Um, so we've brought in evidence from housing associations and how housing associations have been well-funded for the last 40 years through private finance. Some of the metrics and measures that they uh, use with their funders, their banks and their, and their bondholders. And we've tried to develop that in the context of describing the opportunity that the abolition of the HRA debt cap gives HRA authorities now um, from 2019 onwards. So the analysis is of the accounts in 2018-19 and uh, fundamentally, Scott, the underlying message is there is a very large capacity to invest, a financial capacity to invest now. That's what I'm sure we'll talk about later. That doesn't necessarily mean that the investment will happen because there are other constraints and challenges. But from a funding perspective, in the very large majority of cases, there is a big opportunity to invest in new development. And I think one of the things that, uh, and we can describe that in various different ways, um, some of the key figures that we've picked out of the analysis are a minimum of 10 billion available now to borrow um, without any application of grants, uh, a maximum potentially of 18 billion using um, a straightforward application of metrics which apply in the housing associations. So it pays you money, it takes your choice. Whichever way around, it's a very big number. And just to a, a, a couple of points of detail um, within the analysis, I think you know, they're bringing out really. So um, we've identified um, it, what in housing association registered providers speak would be operating margin, which is operating surplus divided by turnover. A key measure used, as I'm sure you know, by the regulator of social housing to test the resilience of housing associations in terms of the, their delivery capacity and their, you know, their resilience to potential changes in the market. On the back of operating margin, we can calculate a number of different um, measures and metrics along with asset values and the amount of debt. So some of the key ones that lead back to us is uh, interest cover, which is just less than two, uh, loan to value, which is just less than 30%, and debt to turnover, which is just around about 3.2. Now, all three of those metrics are the better side of the ability to invest when compared to the housing association global accounts that were published in 2018. So that in itself suggests that the 
authority, local authority sector as a whole has the opportunity to you know, bring forward investment. But certainly, um, in proportionate terms, along the, le- along the same lines as housing associations. Average debt's around £16,500 a unit, which is well below the housing association level of debt. So all roads, if you like, all financial roads lead to this sense that there is the opportunity to invest. We've also, throughout the analysis, um, or via the analysis as an adjunct, have picked up some fairly useful stats, or what we would say would be fairly useful stats, like <coughs> average turnover, average rents, average service charges across the stock, average management and maintenance and major repairs. So those statistics can be applied and and, um, and utilised by people when they're doing their own comparative analyses and their own benchmarking. And what we can also do is compare those to housing associations. And once again, you know, they're on the right side of all of the HRA stats. So lower turnover, lower cost, um, lower interest costs, lower weighted average cost of capital. So on all of the stats across the whole of the national HRA, this is pointing to the ability to, to get going from a financial perspective. So it's a huge opportunity there yeah. for local authorities. Yes. Coming out of your, are there any geographical oddities that have come out? Is there, a, is there a north-south divide, or is the Midlands really well served in capacity, or was it individual authorities that have got particular issues rather than the overall, overall scheme and things? Yeah, no, actually, it's really interesting because um, one, of the, one of the pitfalls, potentially, of doing an analysis like this is, um, you know, necessarily the HRA is a very local account, and very local decisions have informed the financial backdrop for each uh, council house or council housing authority, you know, decisions that may have been taken sort of 40, 50 years ago, and certainly decisions taken um, still since self-financing. So we've not generated or identified any particular trends between large or small, rural or urban, uh, London borough versus the rest, or net versus the rest. What I would say, though, is that as we would expect, London authorities have the highest value, the highest debt, and the highest turnover per property and the highest cost per so we'd expect those kinds of things, but in terms of capacity to invest, there isn't actually a great deal of difference. The regional variation um, in interest cover is between one and a half to about two point three. Now, individual authorities vary quite widely, and we've said in the in the analysis, and we've, we've set out the three metrics I've mentioned and the distribution, and there is quite a wide distribution. So. I think one of the things that we want to do next is to delve down a little further and to try and get behind some of the stats locally to see. And I, and I suspect that what we'll find is the capacity to invest will be greater when we start delving down into the detail. And given that opportunity and capacity within HROs, do you think there remains a rationale or a, a reason for councils to develop using their local housing companies? Because we've seen so many local authorities develop these. Uh, LHCs, as we like to call them, over yeah. the last five years in particular, is that is there still a need for a local housing company? Really? Yeah, and I, I, I think so, and I think and, and for the following reasons. So, so first of all, there's no such thing as a single type of local housing company. Seventy-eight percent of authorities in England have some form of subsidiary company or joint venture, and they're doing lots of different jobs. In uh, many authorities, they're development companies, which are bringing forward residential developments across a wide range of tenures. In many authorities, there are um, companies set up to run market-rented housing and to offer market-rented housing. And in some authorities, there are affordable housing companies. And um, so, uh, you know, the first two of those, DevCos and PRS companies, 
aren't really affected by a large council house building programme. In fact, one might argue that a large council house building programme feeds the idea of the local debt code to capture surpluses from the development process within a local authority. But I think the reason fundamentally why local housing companies aren't going to go away, I think there's three really to think about. So one is that you know, the reason for doing companies can often be around generating value for the council's general fund as a whole, rather than um, necessarily around the provision of housing. And that need isn't going away. In fact, it's likely to um, intensify. Um, I think the second area is around the diversification of offer. So it's not difficult to imagine a situation where an ambitious authority is building social rent in the HRA and building a slightly diversified affordable housing offer within um, its local housing. I mean, I think the third thing that we find, I'm not sure uh, what your view on this would be, Scott, from your work locally, but what we find is that where authorities have ambition to build council housing, they tend to have ambition around providing housing across all tenures. So, as I say, you know, the, um, the most ambitious authorities, the ones with the head of, heads of the parapet the most, tend to be moving forward on all fronts. So, I, I see companies very much as complementary. Yeah, I totally agree with you that where we see development happening in local authorities, it's happening across the piece yeah. in the HRA, in a local housing company, often also with a joint venture vehicle complementing sort of all, all, of, the, all, of, the, all of the other opportunities and uh, mechanisms available. But the HRA debt cap was lifted in 2018, and we've had self-financing since 2012, and we're only now starting to see some significant um, developments happening with local authorities. What are the main What are the main reasons and challenges to, that you see stopping local authorities building at scale? Well, certainly a little bit of history around um, you know since 2012. Although um, it's true to say that self-financing freed uh, HRAs up from the previous centralised housing subsidy system. That, the imposition of the debt um, limited, you know, potential ambition um, almost from day one. And I think there were three, you know, additional challenges driven by housing and housing finance policy since 2012, or from 2012 onwards, that mitigated against, you know, large-scale investment. The first of those was the reintroduction of the right to buy, or sorry, the extension of right to buy discounts in 2012. Um, the Housing and Planning Act 2016, some of the measures that were proposed, particularly the high-value voids, um, uh, sale issue certainly mitigated against authorities you know, bringing forward extensive plans. And I also think the rent cut has had a dampening effect, as it did for housing associations in the early years of the rent cut. You know, that's also mitigated against um, delivering ambition. Now, actually, um, with the exception of the right to buy discounts, um, three of those four barriers, if you like, have been removed. We've, we've not got the debt cap, we're returning to the rent increase scenario from 2020 and at, at least um, if, you, if, you, if you if you go with the House of Commons and the House of Lords and Lord Curslake, you know, the Housing and Planning Act measures around high value voids have gone away or kicked into the long ground. Mm -hmm. so, so the barriers to um, inhibit investment have been you know, largely kind of, actually, perhaps we can come back to the right to buy later and whether that um, still offers the kind of inhibiting factor um, that it has. And moving forward, um, you know, as I've um, often said on platforms around the country over the last two years, uh, you know, building housing is a really straightforward thing. You only need three things. You need funding, you need land, and you need the people to do it. And I think it's the land and the people that to do it that offer the biggest challenges around getting this up at scale. 
So as far as land's concerned, um, quite a lot of authorities report to us that um, you know some of the easy wins around infill sites and carrier sites have been uh, you know been done already, and, and you know there may there may need to be the opportunity to get into the land market. Uh, I think that's absolutely inevitable if we're going to see the kind of investment that people are talking about. I think Inside Housing had an article suggesting seventy-seven thousand plans for seventy-seven thousand new council houses over the next five to ten years. You know, they're not all going to go on existing HRA and general fund land, so we need to think about you know, the cost of that and, and how that will happen and the skill set that local authorities need in order to, you know, to get into the land market. And we've certainly seen some you know, some interesting examples where authorities have bought land uh, under pressure and then um, you know, regretted the price that's been paid, you know, and uh, just need to understand a little bit about the skill sets associated with that. Um, but I think the biggest challenge is around you know, the people to do it, and that's not just the trades and the people knocking them out in, but that's the people, that's the professional, the architects, the designers, the cost consultants, the engineers, the whole professional services. And that's, of course, as we know, an industry-wide challenge. It's a challenge for housing associations as much as it is for local authorities. Um, and, um, and so, you know, building longer-term capacity with a steady, predictable pipeline um, I think is probably so that we can have confidence around building supply chains locally, now, in partnership with associations and with developers. You know that's going to be the way to address that challenge of capacity um, and delivery. Um, you might have a view on this, Scott, but I, I wonder sometimes whether the public procurement process and the and the need for competition and the, and the, and the way in which design and build contracts work sometimes does that serve best in the context of delivering value for money? Like, Letting small individual design and build contracts on garage sites, or would it be better to think about a ten-year partnership to procure a ten-year partnership with a predictable pipeline of sites? Well, the value of procurement is a podcast all in itself, isn't it? <laughs> but I think you're absolutely right. There is a there's a there's a there's a problem with economies of scale. There's a problem with uh, the perceived uh, cost and time associated with um, regulated procurement exercises uh, and I think you're absolutely right that if local authorities think that they're going to be able to build this capacity and build a, uh, a pipeline of development on their own, it's going to take them a very long time to build up a development team with the skills and experience of a housing association development team. So it neatly uh, glides into a question I wanted to ask you about collaboration. We are, we are seeing in some authorities the desire to work more closely with either private sector developers or registered providers in a formal corporate or a, a contractual joint venture. And we're seeing that where those sort of arrangements come to fruition, that developments get away uh, more quickly uh, and um, more efficiently. Do you, do you have a view on, on collaboration in the way of Very much so, yes. And, and I think we see that as well, that where where local authorities are open to partnership, collaboration, and joint ventures, however those are formalised and structured, uh, it, we see better value being delivered. Um, and we see it in, particularly in London with the, with the application of um, GLA grants and the availability of GLA grant for social rent in the HRA, with the debt cap having been removed and the opportunity to build at scale. Those authorities, those London boroughs in particular, that have entered into long-term partnerships or are, are considering the longer-term partnerships and collaborations, 
would on the face of it appear to be delivering a better value than those that are just coming to, to this now and starting and thinking about you know letting contracts in the usual way. I think for me, value in development is about partnership. It's about using the resources that are available in the industry, committing the industry to investing in you know succession and skills, whether that's apprenticeships or whether it's technical colleges or whatever it is, and the industry needs the certainty and predictability of a pipeline in order to commit to developing and investing in that supply chain. So um, yes, definitely collaboration and definitely partnership, but what I would really strongly argue is that, as we all know, the best value in development comes from being able to commit to a pipeline. So it's not just about that pipeline enabling investment in a supply chain. But it's actually about delivering better value over a longer period. If you know that you're going to have a pipeline site for the next 10 years, you can commit resources now and deliver better value for the local authority. But it is interesting that you know some local authorities we see are you know that that the, the, the natural response to being able to build council housing at scale again is to want to do it themselves. Yes. And um, there is absolutely nothing wrong with that at all. Um, and there are some very good, high-profile examples of authorities building at scale that are doing it themselves. The reality is, if we're going to significantly enhance delivery across the piece, then it may be that many or some local authorities will not be able to do it themselves because they simply will not be able to hire the resources. So. Um, there's a lot to think about, but there's a lot to play for. I think there's a lot to play for for developers, but particularly for housing associations. Mm. And we've seen housing associations, you know, gradually beginning to break that sort of mindset of we've got to own, we've got to own. Whatever we do, we've got to own. We, we see them positively responding to legal and general and affordable homes advertising for management agreement contracts, for example. So this sense of associations selling their services and expertise not necessarily having to own the end results, I think is something that we, we can expect to see over the next few years. As well. Right. Yeah, nice call to arms for better collaboration. Absolutely. Yeah. When I, I was at your recent affordable housing seminar, um, which is also very good, by the way, um, I, when you were doing uh, your presentation on some of the findings of your capacity study, you mentioned that one authority had repaid its debt already. <laughs> Um, which led me to thinking about uh, the, the rationale why some authority, why an authority would want to pay that cheap debt if it didn't need to. But um, that's 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 a topic for another day. But that links into the other thing we're seeing in the market, which is some authorities wanted to get back into develop, developing uh, general needs housing in a housing revenue account once they'd previously got rid of their housing through a large scale voluntary transfer. So are you seeing the reopening of housing revenue accounts from by, by those authorities that have previously closed them as um, something that we'll see more of or, use, or useful or not? Well, I think um, uh, there's a couple of just a couple of thoughts on this really. So, I mean, certainly we've seen lots of interest since the debt cap was abolished. We've had a number of people, I'm sure you have, Scott, in your team, we've had a number of people come to us saying, well, you know, what are our options around yes. reopening a, a housing revenue account? Uh, what are the rules? Uh, very interesting. I'm not sure there are that many rules. <laughs> <laughs> I think the civil servants would be writing them as they went along, which is an opportunity, actually, as well as a, a yes. challenge. I think um, where we find the biggest argument for reopening an HRA 
as opposed to developing in an affordable housing company, is grant and any opportunity to you know potentially do a deal with Homes England or GLA, if you want a few LSVTs in London, to levering grant for new council housing and new social housing. But there are necessarily some challenges. Um, I mean, leaving aside the obvious challenge around capacity and around lack of platform and lack of existing um, stock and service, and leaving aside the you know, the obvious opportunities that an existing HRA has to cross subsidise or to, to help pump prime investment in new stock, which is the basis of the study that we that we've done. You know, there are some some challenges anyway. Um, you know, many members um, may consider that the capturing of value from building new social housing and ring fencing in the HRA is a problem rather than um, a solution. Um, so I think you know where we where we're going to see it will be maybe in a few cases just to kind of set the, the trail. And uh, what I would say is that um, we we do see LSBT authorities struggling with the relationship with their LSBT association or what has their, that's what you their, don't know who it is anyway. Well, <laughs> what the housing association has you know um, has merged and acquired into, um, and there's not a problem with that, of course, but. Um, but I think we, you know, we've certainly seen examples where authorities get frustrated because local local housing associations RPs are looking for big fish, and they're not necessarily worried about you know or concerned to build on smaller sites or to acquire section one or six on smaller sites. And so we've certainly seen um, examples of that. But whether reopening the HRA will become a majority sport, I think will come down to well, primarily two things: first, incentives around grant from government. So uh, it, it, this isn't a political statement. There is a manifesto commitment to more council housing and to provide more grant for council housing. If that grant is available to non-HRA authorities, it provides an incentive to reopen, and that will bring, I'm sure, some people to the party if more grant can be available for non-HRA authorities. And then uh, I think the second thing is whether whether it will become over time a, a majority sport will depend on some trailblazers like you, Liverpool's or whatever, actually doing this and seeing what happens and then learning the lesson as you, as you know. Right. Yeah. With the original stock transfer programme, it was demonstrating the first two or three could be got away, which then and went, went on to be delivered. That's right. And, Liverpool, and, and, and Liverpool are, as you, as you indicate, you know, a, a, a bit further down the line than, yeah. than most authorities in, in, re, in consideration of the issues around yeah, the, the HRA. So, uh, and you need a, a very strong mayor, for example. Yes. Uh, who, who has a desire to to yeah. a, a strong general needs housing again as as council housing. One final question for me then, Steve. We we saw a out of the blue announcement a couple of weeks ago that um, the government, the treasury, were increasing the rate of public works loan board borrowing by an additional one percent uh, across the board. Do you think that's going to have an impact on the nascent council house building um, program? Well, I should say that um, within our capacity analysis, um, we only ever modelled um, new borrowing at an interest rate which is around about the long-term PWRB rate now. Um, one of the reasons for that was that the PWRB rate reduced during the course of 2019 following gilts, um, and, um, and that reduction was quite steep within this calendar year. And when the government made the announcement and said, well, we're only going back to what it was last year, whilst hardly ideal, that wasn't necessarily an untrue statement. 
So what we found, uh, what we found is that um, you know the, the, there's three three key points really. One, so one is that we've got an existing volume of debt, twenty six billion. That's averaging three point nine percent floating average cost of capital or average interest across the country. So you can still borrow at less than that. So nationally, you know, it's not necessarily adding interest costs to um, the mix. And there is that marginal impact of borrowing at new rates based on the fact we've already got twenty six billion. I think the second point I'd make is, and no, and we've worked with so many authorities that I think this is a, almost a, a, a universally true statement: is that nobody had updated their HRA business plan to reflect the lower PWRB rates. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I think what I would say is that it can hardly be good news in two particular areas. So one is. If your HRA is about to go out and borrow a billion to build two and a half, four, three thousand new council houses, and you thought you were going to borrow at two and it now needs to be three, then clearly that's going to happen. And that marginal impact for the HRA could be an actual, definite, sort of pound for pound impact when you're looking at either lending to housing companies or, you know, to make stuff happen, whether acquisition or development, or you're looking at larger scale regen schemes where you're potentially borrowing in order to make stuff happen. So I'm by no means saying that it was good news, in fact, far from it. I just think that there's a difference in the impact between the existing HRA business plan mass of the, of, of, of the national HRA, if you like, and those schemes that were modelled and appraised on the basis of the low rates, which are now potentially going to be tipped into non-viability as a result of the inputs in the and, and it might actually mean that other forms of financing come into play for local authorities. And I've seen Rob Whiteman from SIFA saying that he now sees the, the increase in the, the PWRB, PWRB rate making it more likely that bonds and private placements might be uh, looked at by local authorities across the piece, not just on the housing um, development side, but on, on, on general uh, capital projects within the local, within local authorities. Yeah, and I think what I'd say on that is that on general capital projects for local authorities, the chances are that there's a little bit more risk-reward going on there, whereas if you're securing your bond against against uh, you know, new council housing, then there's, you, you, you might argue there's a little bit more predictability. I, I, it's going to be interesting to see, and um, I, I, I think that at the end of the day, money talks, and if you... If you can borrow, if PWRB is up at 3% and you can borrow from an institution, uh, either issue a bond or, or enter into a, any kind of restructure or infrastructure structure at 2 to 2.5, two then clearly you're, going to, you know, you're almost mandated to have a look at it as a, as a finance officer within the council. Um, I, think, I think the big challenge about private finance and that type of approach is, is, is the cost of doing it. At the end of the day, you, it's difficult to put a price on the overhead avoided by just being able to ring up the big round B and borrow just like that. So I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm not sceptical and, you know, here at Savants we will have a look at that with people, of course we will. And, um, you know, we're very well connected in with the in investors who may well want to invest in, um, in these type of uh, solutions. Um, but I think there's a bit of a way to go to understand how the options process looks. Yeah. Hey, well, Steve, that's been uh, a, a great chat. So thanks so much for coming along. No problem. All right. All right. Thank you very much. Cheers. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Trowers and Hamlins. Find us at trowers.com 
and join in the conversation on Twitter at Trowers or find us on LinkedIn and Instagram.